to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 11. We're continuing part three in our series of Discovering Antioch. If you're here with us today for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you. My name's Jay Duncan. I'm the senior pastor here. I love this church. I love this people. I love this house. And it's my great joy and privilege to serve in this capacity. We recently changed our name from Freedom Church to Antioch. And we thank you for bearing with us as we're continuing to work out all of the processes that are in place to uh, complete that transition. But we are on a series called Discovering Antioch. Not just the Antioch of the New Testament, but the Antioch of today, the Antioch of now. A fivefold church, a kingdom church, a church filled with sons and daughters that are being established in their identity and equipped for their assignment in the earth. That really is our guiding mission to establish you in your sonship so that you can be equipped for your assignment so that God's kingdom can come to the earth, bringing transformation on every level, the local level to the global level. The kingdom of God is transformational by nature. Our guiding passages for the church of Antioch here are in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at Acts chapter 11 this morning, and we're going to begin with verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, He brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, and they taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. I find it interesting here that Barnabas went to Tarsus to find Saul. Saul, we discover in Acts chapter 9, was a murderer. He was a religious zealot. He was so devout in his faith that he was even espousing and aspiring to not only the imprisonment of Christians, but even the martyrdom of Christians because he was so strict in his Judaistic faith, his Judaistic religious beliefs. And then the the Lord encountered him in Acts chapter 9. Saul became converted and became one of the fiercest Uh, proponents for the Messiah, for Jesus, for Christianity, even so much so that many people began to fear him. They weren't sure, uh, is is this guy, this is the same guy that used to murder Christians. Now, uh, is he for us or is this a trap? This is very similar to the situation in Egypt and in many Middle Eastern countries where there is a high level of suspicion for those who used to be of a different religious persuasion and then have come to know Christ. And there is a very... uh, very strict suspicion on whether or not they're just trying to kind of work their way in so that they can expose where the underground church is. That's kind of what was going on there in the book of Acts chapter 9. But Saul began debating with the religious Pharisees in such a manner, confounding, baffling, proving that Jesus is the Christ, that then there was a death sentence that was put upon his head. Saul had to flee to a place called Tarsus, where he began having many encounters with the Lord and Jesus himself began discipling Saul. And when Barnabas came to the church at Antioch and he found that there were so many new believers in the faith, he went and he found Saul. Now there's incredible significance to that, that he found this renegade convert, he found this radical convert to help insert kingdom DNA into this new work We'll talk about that as we move forward. But what I want to highlight here, very simply, this little passage that says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
The word there, Christians, is a very simple word, Christianos, which very simply means followers of Jesus. Antioch was a very unique place, as Pastor Doug mentioned a few weeks ago. It was the third largest city in that area, but it was a very Hellenistic city. It was a very Greek-oriented city filled with many Gentiles. In fact, Antioch was only inhabited by a small amount of Jewish people, some of which were Messianic Jews, those who had come to believe in Jesus as the Christ. But overall, it was a very uh, Gentile, Hellenistic Greek society. Very different than Jerusalem, very different than where the church was first established. So it was, it's no mistake here that in the scriptures it says they were first known to be Christians or followers of Jesus because in that day, very much like the Hindus of India, the Gentile Hellenistic followers, they, would just, they, they had a very synchronistic or a very pluralistic approach to religion. They would take many different types of gods. We see this in the Greek gods. And they would say, okay, well, Jesus is just one of many gods, and if he can empower us and if he can do good things for us, then we'll follow him. But we know that that's not the case for true Christianity, and we're going to talk about that today. These followers of Jesus in the church at Antioch, they were so distinct. Their devotion to Jesus was so unique. It was so set apart that they had to come up with a different name. The Gentiles there had to come up with a different name to mark who these people were because they weren't just Jews and they weren't just followers of Judaism and they weren't just people that were following a number of different gods. They were strictly followers of Jesus. And so they had to say, we're gonna call you Christianos, Christians. Some people call that little Christs. I want to talk with you for a few minutes this morning about what kind of Christianity Antioch Church is going to follow. Let me read this quote to you out of Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live? It's a quote about worldview. It says, people have presuppositions, and they will live more consistently on the basis of these presuppositions than even they themselves may realize by presuppositions, we mean the basic way that an individual looks at life. It is his basic worldview. I heard a speaker on Ravi Zacharias' broadcast that said that your worldview is not so much what you see, but it's how you see. Your worldview is your lens by which you view all of the world, all of life. Presuppositions rest upon that which a person considers to be the truth of what exists. It is the grid through which he or she sees the world. People's presuppositions, in other words, their presupposed, their predetermined inclinations, their presupposed ideas of what is true, that is what a presupposition is. People's presuppositions lay a grid. It was as if you were to put on rose-colored glasses or if you put on blue sunglasses, then everything that you see would be blue. That's what a presupposition is. It determines how you see all of life. If you have a rejected presupposition, you'll become very suspicious of people. Because of hurts that you've experienced in your life, then you presuppose or you presume that every person that you meet is going to hurt you. We see this a lot, particularly as it relates to leadership. People who get hurt by leadership then form a presupposition or a worldview that all leaders cannot be trusted and they will hurt them. We see this in many different facets of life. 
People's presuppositions lay a grid for all they bring forth into the external world. Their presuppositions also provide the basis for their values and therefore the basis for their decisions. Let me say that one more time. A person's worldview determines the basis for their values and therefore the basis for their decisions. Dennis Peacock has summarized this very well by a phrase the Lord gave him called, the mind justifies what the heart has chosen. And you find that when you interact with people, you find that whatever their heart has chosen to be true or whatever direction their heart has chosen to go in, and we can pick any cultural hot topic, it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna stir the, I'm not gonna stir the pot here. But we can choose any cultural hot topic from same-sex marriage to the legalization of abortion to the legalization of marijuana. Regardless of what the scripture says, and we're going to talk about this, the question here remains, is your worldview shaping your Christianity or is your Christianity shaping your worldview? It's a very important question that I encourage you to write down to be a great question to discuss even in our life groups. Is your worldview shaping your Christianity? Or is your Christianity, is your, I'm a follower of Christ and the totality of what that means, my devotion to Christ, my devotion to his truth, my devotion to his heart, my devotion to his voice, that is what is shaping my Christianity. It's very important for us to ask that because like all of language, there is a strategy for all of language. The enemy has a strategy for all of language. Posing as positive that which the spirit of this age wants people to buy into and posing as negative that which is strictly and clearly belonging to Christ. It's a language strategy. And we have seen that played out for generations now. And we are actually eating the fruit of the language strategy that has been devised by demonic spirits. And I'm okay going on record as saying that the brilliance of the language strategy that we are facing in our culture is something so brilliant that no mere man could have conjured up. This is the brilliance of demonic spirits that have been concocted to help bring forth the enemy's plans into the earth, into our culture. To accept that, which is clearly biblically unacceptable. Scripture says this in Jonah, that the wicked, they are so debased that they can't even discern their right hand from their left. And you can apply that upon all the cultural templates that you want to. The mind justifies what the heart has chosen. Have you ever sat down with a person who, whether it's a friend of yours or maybe a, a, a child of yours, and their heart has become emotionally connected with a person and everyone around them knows this is not the right person for you. You ever been in a situation like that? And you're trying to tell them, you're trying to reason with them, and then after a while, what happens is that person, they begin to disassociate themselves with all those voices because the mind will justify what the heart has chosen in whatever arena. If your heart has chosen that this particular area of your life is is good for you, even though it may, it may clearly be, be unbiblical and sinful, then your mind will then begin to create these very brilliant 
justifiable reasons as to why this should be good. I have seen men whose families, who have literally traded their families because their mind has justified what their heart has chosen. This is why worldview, this is why truth is so important in this hour. We must ask ourselves, if we are to be called Christian in this hour, then we must ask ourselves what kind of Christian we are to be. Because the kind of Christian we choose to be will determine the kind of church we become. Churches, I believe, are spiritual organisms. I believe the church of Antioch in this house, I believe that it is living. And it has a spirit. It has an identity. It has a destiny. And that spirit and that identity and that destiny of this house, this church, is composed of us. And to the degree that we grow and mature, our church will be mature. And to the degree that we become Christian as the Bible defines Christian, to that degree our church will be Christian as the Bible defines what is Christian, not as the culture defines what is Christian, which is very, very important. Again, I'm asking the question, is your worldview shaping your Christianity? It's important for us to ask that question because many people still consider America to be a Christian nation. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. I believe, based on very clear observations, that our nation is very clearly an anti-Christian nation. Through our media, through our education, through the curriculum that we are uh, espousing ourselves to, through the government law, the legislation, all of these things are completely anti-Bible, they're anti-Christ. In the name of whatever language strategy is being used, our nation has become a very clear anti-Christian nation. And if we continue to adopt the notion that we are a Christian nation, then it begs us to ask the question, what kind of Christian nation are we? How are we defining Christian? Let me talk here about a couple of types of Christianity as we set the foundation, as we continue to discover who Antioch is. Because here's what I know about church and here's what I know about you because here's what I know about me. Is that as we step into this new identity, every one of us has an idea of what this church should be. Every one of us come into this room with a picture of what this church should be, of what expectations we have this church should be doing. And unless we clearly establish biblically what our focus is and who we are to become, what our identity is and what our assignment is, then we leave room for confusion, for division, and for ultimately for disappointment. So what kind of Christian church are we to be? Number one, there is the cultural Christianity. I call this popular Christianity. By definition, Cultural Christianity determines our view of God, our view of church, and our view of life by the culture around us. Cultural Christianity or cultural churches allow the culture's norms, patterns, habits, standards, or even laws of what is acceptable or not to shape what we deem to be right and what we deem to be true. Even laws. Even laws. Let me say this for us all to understand. Just because a law 
advocates that something is acceptable, that's because a civil government law advocates that something's acceptable does not mean that it is acceptable unto God. So we're not going to go into all of the worldview on legislation and law and government and, and the five spheres of government and all of those things. There is a place for that. But it's important for us to understand and believe this principle. That is, even if a godless government says that it is okay to perform certain actions, there is a government that supersedes and there is a government that defines what is righteous. In other words, what's acceptable. There is a government, there is a kingdom, there is a king who we determine what is right and acceptable from. We do not determine what is right and acceptable from the culture around us. This is everything from fashion to the language that we speak to the attitudes that we carry. This is everything from what our mindsets, our ideologies believe to be right and acceptable and true. These things are not to be determined by popular opinion. Cultural Christianity says if it's acceptable by the masses, then it must be right. Kingdom Christianity says it is right because God says it's right, and he says it's right because he is right, and he is perfect, and there is none other like him because all biblical worldview begins with the character and the nature of who God is, not by the popularity of the masses. Earlier this week, I was exposed to a show that is out called Preachers of L.A. Thank you. If you don't want to raise your blood pressure, I would encourage you not to watch this show. I have not watched an episode. I've watched a couple of trailers. I did a little bit of a YouTube search on it. And essentially, it's a reality TV show about the lifestyles of the rich and famous in the preaching world. One particular preacher is not married. He goes from girlfriend to girlfriend. And young Christians, remember Ephesians 4 says, so that we will not be like infants tossed to and fro with every wind and wave of doctrine. Yet young people who see this can go, oh, well, if he does it, then it must be right. Popular Christianity says if my leader does it. Popular Christianity says if my mom does it, if my friends do it, if someone else is doing it, then it must be acceptable. But kingdom Christianity says, what does the king say? And, and what does the constitution of this kingdom say is right and is not right? Preachers of LA say every, every person should be rich. One person was quoted as saying, well, PDD gets to ride Ferraris and Jay-Z gets to ride Ferraris, so I should be able to ride Ferraris too. That is a mindset. Scripture calls it leaven. It is a mindset, it is a belief. It is an ideology, it's a philosophy, it's a presupposition, it's a worldview that creeps into the way that they go about living Christian life and it, cre- and it creeps into the way they approach the church and it creeps into the way they approach God. Now, I'm not against wealth. I'm against kingdom economics. I'm for kingdom economics and kingdom wealth. What I am against is greed and selfishness and amassing material goods for the sake of amassing material goods not for fulfilling the assignment of the kingdom. Another word for cultural Christianity is not just popular Christianity, but it's pseudo-Christianity. It's very much Hellenistic or syncretistic. 
Christianity. What does that mean? It means we'll take a little bit of our Jesus. We'll take a little bit of the stuff that the church gives us, but we'll mix it in and we'll marry it in with everything else that is around us. And essentially, whatever we want to be right and true, that's what we'll follow. I remember I was working with a young man. uh, And the beautiful thing about discipleship is you get the opportunity to know a person so that you're not cookie-cuttering you're not just mass reproducing their process of growth. And there was a particular issue in this man's life that I knew was a real problem. It was very deceptive in this particular area and particularly as it related to young women. And so I, I was just putting, I, I was putting the, a little pressure on him, asking him to observe certain um, restrictions that I asked him to participate in. Number one, because of his growth journey. Number two, because he was a leader. And he proceeded after a few weeks of this to go and find another spiritual father who would adopt and endorse what his mind, what his heart had chosen. Are you hearing me this morning? We do this as Christians all the time. Let's take a look at what the word says and you can turn with me in your Bible to the book of Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. I always looked at this verse from the, the personal vantage point, which we can look at that as a, in the personal vantage point, but we can also look at this in the, in the we vantage point, the community, the church vantage point. We can look at this at the cultural vantage point looking at it from a macro level. Verse one, therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. What does that mean? It means be careful how you think, be careful what you think, Be careful of your attitude. Be careful of what you choose to be true. Do not allow this world to shape and form your worldview. Let your worldview be shaped and formed by the kingdom and the king. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world's worldview. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which means that many of us, if we're gonna take this seriously, We must interact with the Holy Spirit and we must interact with the truth of God's word and we must violently and aggressively say, God, would you reveal to me areas of my mind that are operating according to the pattern and the belief system of this world? As it relates to how we deal with each other, as it relates to our views on marriage, as it relates to uh, gender, as it relates to every area of life, Lord, show me where I have adopted the worldview of the spirit of this age. Jesus' approach was not a approach of cultural Christianity. Everything he did was not motivated by what was popular. Everything he did was motivated out of obedience to the Father. So as you come here week after week, as you associate yourself with who Antioch Church is, number one, we must just draw a definitive line and say, we are not a cultural Christianity church. You may not find sermons based off the latest TV series here in this church. 
you will find sermons that challenge you to live in obedience to the truth of God's word. Number two, there is the consumer Christianity. Consumer Christianity. I call this the satisfying Christianity. The word consume means to take, to destroy, to waste, to spend. Many of us in Christendom today have adopted a consumer approach to the church and a consumer approach to Christianity. Another way of saying that is what's in it for me? I will utilize the things of God to feed my soul, not necessarily my spirit. Let me interpret that for you. I've heard people come and say, uh, I, I just so need to get my worship fixed this week. Haven't seen them for months. Haven't seen them for years. They show up, they come down, they worship their guts out, and then they leave. Friends, that's not kingdom, and that's not community. That's not responsible. That is selfish. That is an example of consumer Christianity. I say that just as gently as I possibly can, but uh, I hope I'm not being too harsh in this. Consumer Christianity says, I go to that preacher because I like the way he preaches, not necessarily because the truth of God's word is being spoken. There is a covenant community I can be responsible to. There is a people that I can join my heart with. There is, an, there is a mission and an assignment of the kingdom that I can rally my heart and I can give myself and my finances and my talents and my heart to. That's what kingdom Christianity is. But consumer Christianity says, um, as long as it's good, and as long as it's entertaining, and as long as it's feeding my soul, then I'll keep going to it. The implication here is, what happens when the worship ceases being good as you define good? Let's, let's take a look at the scripture, and let's see what the scripture has to say about this. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, King David, against God's orders creates a census of the land. And as a result of this particular sin, God releases a judgment upon the entire nation. David goes and he says, I must get things right between me and God. I must repent. I must bring sacrifice to the Lord. And he meets a man who owns a threshing floor. His name was Arana. And Arana said to the king, because he's the king, he says, king, I have this threshing floor and I will offer it to you for free so that you can worship God. Listen to David's response in 2 Samuel 24, 24. But the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. He built an altar to the Lord and he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. That was very, that's, that's right there is just very countercultural. If we had a revelation of this truth as it relates to the tithe, as it relates to serving the body, as it relates to serving one another, as it relates to worshiping God, regardless of what's happening up here, our churches at large would look very different. Worship is not so much what we receive from God. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There's an element of our soul that was created and put inside of us to enjoy life. So there is an element of enjoyment that we will receive when we worship God. But I look at it like I teach our missionaries. If you will go to this country and you will pour your life out, if you will sacrifice, if you will serve, if you will work hard, if you will not, if you'll not waste any moment holding back for yourself, but you'll trade it all for the people of that country, in the end, you will find yourself richly blessed and satisfied. I find worship the same way. Worship unto God is the word in, in, in the word is proskuneo. It means, it means to bow down. It means to bring an offering. It means to bring God a good gift. So the question that we should be asking ourselves in churches in America and around the world very simply is this, not how's the worship? The question should be, how's the offering that I'm bringing to my God? Is God worthy of my worship? Or boy, they really did a good number today. Boy, that sound was really, it's really great today. That's the wrong question. The questions we ask come out of our worldview and our presuppositions, the basic grid through which we interpret all of life. If we interpret life with the presupposition that the church exists for us, i.e. humanism, then we'll ask questions like, what kind of services, programs, projects, events, what are they doing to bless me? Church, we get blessed when we give God our best. Somebody can tweet that for me, put my name on it. Here's a consumer Christianity approach to the word. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet speaks about those who would gather around. I don't know how they did this. They would gather around and they would listen to Ezekiel because they liked the way he would communicate. And then they would go around and they would keep defying God. And they would keep rebelling against God. But there was something about the way that Ezekiel communicated that they really liked the way that he communicated. So they just sit and they'd listen and go. Like King Agrippa who would say unto Paul, almost thou hast persuaded me. You're a pretty good orator. You've almost persuaded me. But I'm gonna continue to go my own way. Scripture speaks about John the Baptist and he would come before King Herod. And the scriptures would say that Herod from time to time would bring John the Baptist out to speak to him And then he would say, okay, that's enough. Go back to your cage. This is a consumer approach to the word of God. The book of James chapter one, verse 22 through 25. Let's look at that together. James chapter one, 22 through 25. Beginning in 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The preaching, the instruction, the teaching of the word of God, whether it be that we get that through podcasts, through TBN, through a Sunday service, through a life group, it is not designed for us to critically evaluate in the form of its entertainment. The word of God is designed to penetrate our lives and bring transformation. The word of God is something we should tremble at. The word of God should be something we should hold in the highest esteem and we should say, my God, Lord, search me, examine me. Spirit of truth, speak to me. Lead me into truth. I want to be a man of truth. We want to be people of truth so that we can be a church of truth, so that we can prophetically proclaim truth to the culture. And we don't have to be rude and arrogant when we do that. But church, we must know truth to engage the culture 
of our land. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Verse 25. But whoever intently, that's a good word, who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, will be blessed. Will be blessed. Search the scriptures. We get blessed not just when we sit under the anointing of a great preacher. We get blessed when we look intently into the perfect law that brings freedom and continue to do it, not forgetting it, but doing what it says. You know, a few years ago, and I know that this may be very controversial, but um, there were some guest speakers that came into our city and they were speaking some things. And church, you need to understand that Prophetic dreams and prophetic visions and prophetic words are good to the degree that they support this word. A dream and a vision and a prophetic word are never to be a substitute for the word of God. They're not to be used to manipulate the word, to twist the word, or to make the word do what it wants it to do. Everything should conform to this word. It is the divinely inspired word of truth. This is the word of of truth. Do not be a people that follow spiritual trends. Don't be a people that get tossed to and fro with whatever seems exciting. Be a people who are steady, solid, balanced, grounded, rooted, deep, substantive, people that will not be moved, unshakable people in the spirit of God's truth. You are not consumers. The scripture did not say in Genesis 1:28, you shall consume and multiply. It said you shall be fruitful and multiply. And in fact, let's look at this on a national level. Let's look at this on a global level. We are facing some crazy economic situations right now. For, you know, the, the government of God is designed to make you fruitful not to make you a consumer. We find that in Matthew chapter 25, there were some that he gave five talents to, some he gave three talents to, some he gave one to. The person with five was fruitful. The person with three was fruitful. The person with one consumed it. He wasted it. And he was cursed. Antioch Church is not a church that is a consumer Christian church. We are a church that gives. We are a church that honors. We are not just a church that takes and wastes and spends. We are a church that invests. We are a church that sows. We are a church that is not trendy. We are not a church that's gonna be a flash in the pan. We are a church that's gonna be around for the next thousand years should Jesus tarry because we're not being tossed to and fro with every wind and wave of what we can consume that feels good for the moment. Number three, I call this the convenient Christianity. The convenient church. I marvel, and this is no criticism, it's just something I marvel at. I marvel at services that can be done in an hour. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just venting a little bit. I'm not saying that we have to go four or five hours, although they do that in some places in Africa and Asia. You know, to the degree of your desperation will determine the degree of your pursuit. People talk about the spiritual climate of Africa and, and, and the demons that they face there. Well, you know what? They have to have services four or five hours because the spiritual climate they're facing is a lot different than the spiritual climate we're facing. 
But you know, we always wonder, well, how come we're not seeing blind eyes open? And how come we're not seeing the dead raised? Well, you know, it might be because you complain every time service goes longer than an hour and a half. I mean, think about that. Think about that. We want, to re- we want to receive what is convenient without paying the cost of that which is costly. We see this in the book of Matthew chapter 25. There were five virgins. They were prepared. They purchased oil. They were ready. They were filled with the spirit. They were dialing into God. They were, they were, they were pursuing the bridegroom. And we see five that say, you know what? You paid a price for something. Why don't you just let us borrow what you paid for? Preacher, why don't we just borrow your anointing? Why don't we go to this internship or this ministry or this mission trip and we'll just borrow what they spent their entire lives purchasing so that we can, anointing is not cheap. You want a mantle, pay for it. You want an anointing, put the time in. Go into the secret place, cut people away, get alone, fast, pray. That is the prescription for being anointed and spiritual in the kingdom. It doesn't come by chasing what's convenient. I hope you hear me this morning. The word convenient means that which can be adapted to our wants. Something that is suitable, followed by commodious. Let me give my commentary on that. We adopt a convenient Christianity when we approach our responsibilities to God and God's people with half-hearted commitment. Life groups were not designed to be convenient. Kingdom community is not cheaply bought. We'll talk about that when we get into crisis Christianity. Relationships are not easy. Community, covenant is not easy. We find this in Genesis chapter 15 when God caused Abraham to fall into a sleep. And you know, in the Hebrew culture, when they cut covenant together, they would take an animal, split it in half, put the two parts apart from each other. And the, the, the two parters and parties of the covenant would walk between them and they would essentially say, let it be done unto us as it was done to these animals should one of us break covenant. So you ask, well, what does it mean when you use the word covenant? It means that we want to become a covenant people. We want to become a trustworthy, dependable, reliable people. We want to become a committed people. We want to grow. We want to change the statistics of marriage in our culture. Come on, somebody. We want to be people that can be counted on for work. We want to have people trust that when we say we'll be somewhere and do something, that they can trust us. They can trust our work. They can trust our word because we're a covenant people. How incredible is it going to be someday because it will happen when people say, oh, that that person's from Antioch Church, you can trust them because they're covenant people. Our sons and daughters will be covenant people. Christianity was never designed to be convenient. Imagine what Christianity would look like if Jesus took a convenient approach to the cross. Convenience says, I'll get to it when I feel like it. Convenience says, I'll do it when it's good for me. But the cross and the kingdom says, you do it because the father said so. And you're a son and you're a daughter and you're following the voice of your father and you can trust him. And it may require something from you. In fact, I'll go ahead and promise you, it will require something from you. There's a part of my heart that's very grieved as I think about our nation and I think about the promises that have been promised to so many Christians a Christianity that's convenient. 
And what is our nation going to look like when true crisis hits, when we have been sold that being a Christian is convenient? No other religion on the planet, hear me, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Muslim, Buddhism, and no other, no other religion on the planet espouses to a convenient religion. You can write this down for your notes because I want to get to the last point here. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It hasn't changed for them. It hasn't changed for us. Antioch Church is not a convenient church. I will ask, we will ask things of you. Just like I ask things of my children, just like different companies I've worked for asked things from me. And I find it interesting that we'll be willing to put in overtime for a boss and we'll be willing to rearrange our schedule for a boss and we'll be willing to uh, be inconvenienced for other people. But when it comes to the kingdom, all of a sudden we throw these barriers up. Examine that. I just, I just submit this to you, church, to say, examine that. Finally, and I close with this, crisis Christianity. What does crisis Christianity look like? It looks like God is, a, God is called upon only when I need him to rescue me. Working in the church, we find this a lot in benevolent situations. Now, those of you who have been in positions where you need benevolence, don't take this, you know, don't be offended by this. I'm, pe- I'm preaching on a principle here. We all may at some point of our lives find ourselves in a place unexpected or unbeknownst to us where we need help. That is the beauty of true kingdom community. What is not the beauty of true kingdom community is never giving, never serving, never showing up, and then when you're in trouble, calling on the church the institution of the church, and then getting offended by the institution of the church when you're not helped, when you never enjoyed or participated in mutual participation. Friends, I'm going somewhere with all this. These kind of actions are not mature. You are not designed to live in crisis. There are some people that have called upon the church in their last hour, in their last hour, when, when literally, even if we could help, we couldn't help because we're in the last hour. Look at the word, the word crisis here in the, in, in the dictionary, in the 1828 Webster's dictionary, dictionary says, the decisive state of things or the point of time when an affair arrives to its height. How many times do you find yourself or friends around you when everything, is a, everything must happen now? You must move me now because I'm going to get kicked out in the next hour. Well, I'm working a job. I have a family. The people that I work with, the volunteers that I would recruit to mobilize, to help you, they're, they're at their jobs right now. And how long do you know about this? Two months? Crisis Christianity. The church is only good when I need the church. And if the church is not there, that gives me another reason to be offended at the church. Let me close with the scripture. Proverbs chapter 19, verse three, as it relates to crisis Christianity. And I pray today, my prayer today, as we listen to this, because this is kind of hard stuff to swallow. Don't be offended at this church. Don't let the truth offend you. Swallow this. Take this. 
It's good for you. Be like the person in Proverbs where the author of Proverbs says, son, listen to my counsel, listen to my instruction, listen to my admonition, and by it you will grow and you will live a good life. Proverbs chapter 19, verse three says this, a man's own folly ruins his own life. Let me translate that. By a person's irresponsible, immature, and poor decisions, he finds himself in trouble, right? Can't, can't sign for a loan on a vehicle. Can't put a down payment down for an apartment. Goes from trauma to trauma, drama to drama. What, what is it? Scripture says it is his own poor decisions. But look what happens. Yet his heart rages. He's angry against the Lord. Why? Don't blame God for irresponsible decisions. Don't blame the church. Don't blame your life group when you were never there for them and in a moment of crisis, people could not be there for you. It's irresponsible. Ephesians chapter four says, my responsibility and the responsibility of the church in verse 13 is to help us reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the son of God and become say it with me, mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants, tossed to and fro with every wind and wave of doctrine and the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. You were called to become mature and I'm gonna give my life to help you be that. Let's stand this morning. I think it would be appropriate for us after a message like this to take one minute and just ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? Have I adopted a cultural Christianity? Have I adopted a consumer Christianity? Have I adopted a convenient Christianity? Or have I adopted a crisis Christianity? Because if you have, you'll carry that into Antioch and you'll expect Antioch to cater to cultural, consumer, convenient, or crisis Christianity, and we will not. We will cater to kingdom Christianity, which requires that you grow. It requires that you change. Sons and daughters being established in their identity, equipped for their assignment to bring the kingdom. Holy Spirit of God, would you speak to us? Would you change our mindsets? If we have adopted a worldview that is not in agreement with your kingdom, would you change it? We invite you to change it. In fact, even now, let's just pray this together. In the name of Jesus, I renounce cultural Christianity I renounce consumer Christianity I renounce convenient Christianity and I renounce crisis Christianity I am a follower of Jesus the son of God and the king of the kingdom I am being established in my identity I am being equipped 
for my assignment to bring the kingdom to all of the earth. In Jesus' name. If we can pray for you today in any way.